Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, you can listen to us on WPRR 1680 AM and 95.3 FM in Grand Rapids or WPJC 88.3 FM in Pontiac, Illinois, or streaming on the web at publicrealityradio.org. I am Jeremy Bean, and with me is my fellow Doubtcaster, Justin Schieber. Hello. And today we have an episode that breaks from our ordinary format. This entire episode, we're just going to have an interview with philosopher Eric Wielenberg of DePaul University. Uh, he's done a lot of work in uh, theistic ethics. He's done a lot of work in naturalistic ethics. And so uh, we're really excited to have him on to talk about issues relating to uh, the evidential problem of evil popular responses to it. It's probably no clue to uh, philosophical savvy listeners that uh, Justin and I have both been geeking out a lot about about the idea of skeptical theism and some of the problems uh, that it creates for theistic defenses uh, to the problem of evil. And this was a real treat to be able to get Eric Wielenberg on the show. Um, we just uh, interviewed him for as long as we possibly could, and there's a lot of in and, in and outs and layers to this interview. Some of our listeners more interested in philosophy could probably listen to this one a couple of times over and pick up something new each time. So uh, we're really proud to bring this to you, uh, and I guess without further ado, uh, here's our interview with Eric Wielenberg. Well, we have a real treat for our listeners today, philosopher Eric Wielenberg. Uh, Dr. Wielenberg is professor of philosophy at DuPaul University in Indiana, where he focuses on moral psychology, epistemology, and philosophy of religion. Eric has authored two books that I would highly recommend, Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe and God and the Reach of Reason. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Now, before we start delving into some of the most horrible things in the world, perhaps it might be better to start this interview on a lighter note. Did you ever consider yourself to be a religious person? And, and if so, what, what changed about that? I grew up in Wisconsin, and so um, I was raised uh, in the Lutheran tradition. Um, and I guess there's nothing particularly, the story, I guess, is not particularly exciting. Um, but, you know, I think like, like many kids do at a certain point in Sunday school, um, I started having doubts about, uh, you know, the different uh, stories and accounts that were being told. And those, those doubts sort of grew. And as I became a teenager, um, I found myself, um, you know, rejecting uh, the various Christian beliefs. And, uh, and, th and then that, that skepticism and doubt has basically persisted since then. So there, nothing particularly dramatic happened. Um, so, I, you know, I started out as a particular kind of Christian as a kid and then uh, gradually just sort of fell away. Is this kind of the uh, impetus for you, for your interest in philosophy? My, my initial interest in philosophy, I just sort of love the subject. Uh, you know, I, I really kind of discovered it in college, as a lot of people do. Um, I don't think that, uh, at least in my own mind, I really connected it um, explicitly with sort of religious doubts. Although, um, you know, as I studied philosophy more, I started to see those connections. Um, so I think it was sort of, you know, initially two, two sort of separate things. I sort of fell away from uh, Christian belief, and then in college just really enjoyed the subject of philosophy, and then it was only later that I sort of started to connect those two things in, a, I guess, a more uh, professional way. So, so we want to discuss uh, the evidential problem of evil and the various responses to it, uh, and one of those responses that, that, you've, that you've authored. So many people are going to be familiar with the kind of classical, logical problem of, of evil or suffering. Uh, typically, you know, it, it attempts to argue that the existence of a triomni god is logically incompatible with the existence of any evil. 
uh, or instance of suffering in the world. Could you unpack for us the basics of the evidential problem, the kind of row-style evidential problem of evil, and what makes this different from the logical version? The evidential version, or sometimes it's called the inductive version of evil, uh, in a way it's a sort of uh, scaling back of the, of the atheist aspirations, I guess you might say, so that, uh, <laughs> you know, in the old days, uh, the, the dream on the atheist side was that um, uh, God, God's existence would, could be seen or proven to be logically incompatible with evil or suffering, and since um, it, it seemed pretty uncontroversial that you have evil or suffering in the world, uh, it, it would follow straight away that God uh, simply didn't exist. Um, so there, there have been various responses to that. Um, and so at a certain point, uh, yeah, William Rowe uh, offered, um, I guess in some ways a more modest, um, but in other ways more interesting uh, attempt to use evil to cast, cast doubt on the existence of God. Um, so the, I mean, one important difference is that in, in the logical version, uh, you get a very strong conclusion, um, you know, God, God doesn't exist. I think in the evidential version you get a more modest conclusion, which would be something like um, God probably doesn't exist, or there's, uh, you know, evidence that casts doubt on God's existence or something like that. But to try to, um, I think it'll be helpful to, to have a kind of simple formulation of, of a Rowe-style argument. So let me, uh, let me say a bit about that. I think, um, without getting too technical, I'll just use one uh, sort of, uh, technical term that gets thrown around a lot, which is the term gratuitous evil, mm-hmm. which uh, sort of following Roe we can define as um, a gratuitous evil would just be an evil that a, that a perfect being could prevent without either permitting an equally bad or worse evil or uh, without losing some greater good. Right, so this would be kind of uh, another word for this would be an unnecessary evil, exactly. right? Something that God didn't really need to allow for any reason, uh, just kind of, he just played hands off for some reason. Yeah, unjustified might be another term. It's just there's sort of, there's sort of uh, no call for it, <laughs> I guess is the way of putting sure, it. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so if, we, if we've got that uh, sort of concept, um, then I think a, a simple way of putting Rose's argument would be to just start out with a premise that says um, probably there's at least one gratuitous evil. Uh, and then we'd have a premise that says, well, if there's at least one gratuitous evil, then God doesn't exist. Um, but the conclusion that is is that therefore probably God doesn't exist, since um, the first premise that there's at least one gratuitous mm-hmm. evil, the claim is simply that it, that that's probably true. Uh, now a lot of the action actually involves the first premise, the premise that says probably there's at least one gratuitous evil, and uh, to support that premise, um, Roe introduced or used a certain kind of inference which later on became labeled the, uh, the no-seum inference. Uh, <laughs> and this is the, the inference that skeptical theism um, is supposed to cast doubt on. So the basic idea of the, uh, of the no-seum inference, I think, can be seen with an example. When Roe first gave his original version of the argument, he, he tried to uh, give an example of an evil that, is, as far as we can see, is gratuitous. Right. So his example involved a, uh, a fawn, uh, that's trapped and horribly burned in a forest fire and then slowly dies over several days, uh, sort of, uh, as these things are often uh, kind of a horrific example. Uh, but his idea is that, okay, if, if we sort of reflect on this example, um, as far as we can see, the fawn's suffering is gratuitous. It, you know, it, it appears to us or that there doesn't, doesn't seem to be any um, great evil that's prevented by the fawn's suffering or any great good that's lost. Right, uh, and so, or that would be lost if the fawn didn't suffer. So the uh, what the so-called no-seum inference is the inference from uh, the claim that a certain evil appears to us to be gratuitous, to the conclusion that probably the evil is gratuitous. So it's a, it's an inference from things seem to us to be a certain way um, to probably they are that way, uh, and so that seems to be the inference that underlies the support for that first premise. Again, the first premise says probably there's at least one gratuitous evil. Roe offers an example of uh, an evil that, that appears to us to be gratuitous, and then we use the no-seum inference to conclude that probably that evil is gratuitous, and that's how things uh, get started. I, n- I know a lot of philosophers like uh, Swinburne, for example, make a big deal of the principle of credulity. Yeah, so you might see the no-seum inference as a particular instance of this more general principle 
if it appears to us that P, then probably P is the case. Um, so, so I think that's right, and many philosophers outside of the context of um, the, existence, uh, the, the problem of evil or the existence of God altogether find that to be a, a plausible principle. So uh, on the surface, at least, yeah, it seems to be something that, uh, an inference that has a lot going for it. Now, one of the, I think one of my favorite things about the evidential problem is is the logically necessary condition where it's not just that, uh, you know, given the way the world works now that, you know, this, this particular instance of suffering is, is needed for some greater good. It, it must be logically necessary because the Christian God is, is, is seen to be all powerful. And typically that's catched out in a way of saying that, you know, God can do, uh, that which is logically possible. And I think that that's one of the mo- one of the strengths of this argument. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so God, typically understood, wouldn't be, of course, constrained by, say, the laws of nature. You know, I think the traditional view is that God would be the the creator of those laws, mm-hmm. and so you know could could change them or or suspend them or violate them. So, for example, I mean, one way to think of it is, or I think examples are often helpful. Um, you know, there's this saying, "No pain, no gain." Uh, which often is applied to like working out. So you know, given the given the laws of nature in our world, it's, it appears at least that you can't can't be in very good shape if you don't exercise and, and perhaps endure some suffering. Right. But that would be a merely uh, sort of logically speaking a contingent fact. And so, even if no ga- no pain no gain holds in our world, that wouldn't be something that would bind God. Um, God, right. uh, if he wanted to, could you know give someone the gain without the pain. So the Schwarzenegger principle doesn't apply uh, in, a, in a theistic yeah, universe. Yeah, God can uh, <laughs> can he is he <laughs> he's not bound by the Schwarzenegger principle exactly right. Uh, and so that these uh, yeah when we're talking about um, these connections between evil and say greater goods, um, it has to be a logically necessary connection, not a merely uh, sort of you know law like connection that has to do with the, the laws of nature in our world. Uh, since since Roe kind of came out with this this argument, there's been a number of responses. Uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe go through those for us. I think the main response, the one that's gotten the most attention, is is the one that's come to be known as uh, skeptical theism, mm-hmm. uh, the skeptical theist response. Um, and I think that that response has been developed in in different ways by different philosophers. The uh, sort of the who I see as the founding father of of skeptical theism would be Stephen Weistra. Um, who initially wrote wrote a now famous response to to Rose article, um, and so in my mind, I mean that's is uh, kind of the main response. Uh, but I suppose there are um, a couple other sort of strategies um, for dealing with the argument that are worth mentioning. One has to do with the fact that uh, it is because it is an evidential version. It doesn't, unlike the the logical version, it wouldn't offer sort of decisive um, proof that God doesn't exist. It merely cast doubt or shows it on God's existence or shows that there's uh, some evidence against God's existence. So one strategy is, is to um, uh, basically make the case that, sure, um, certain evils may raise doubts or cast doubt on God's existence or constitute evidence against God's existence, but, there's, but that there might be, nevertheless, stronger evidence for God's existence. And so when you look at all the evidence together on balance, it, even if um, Roe's argument uh, sort of works, it might be that on balance the evidence suggests that overall God probably does exist. Um, so, I mean, the, the strongest version of that strategy would be if you could, if the, on the theist side they could offer um, a deductive proof that God does exist. Uh, that would make Roe's argument sort of of, of academic interest only, then if if we had a a proof that God does exist, then we would be able to infer that however things might seem to us, those those, uh, evils that seem gratuitous must not be gratuitous after all. Right, right. Um, This this does seem like a a rather ambitious task, though, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right, I mean... Especially given the fact that, you know, the, the... your conclusion, the the probability that you would place, would have to be sensitive to the sheer n- number and just volume of these of these seemingly gratuitous evils, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, I mean, it, it becomes a less again. This is why things things get a lot messier um, yeah. because your attention moves. You know, you can't just look at one particular argument or piece of evidence. You've now got to try to arrive at this all things considered yeah. judgment. 
<laughs> so you're you're going to be evaluating all kinds of arguments. Um, I mean, I think certainly on the atheist side, uh, there, there, you know, when you start to pile up the evils, um, it does seem to create a, a substantial evidential burden to be overcome. Um, but I think it, it does mean that, you know, on the atheist side, um, you've got to do some evaluating of the theistic arguments for God's existence, right? Um, right. It's not enough simply to offer an evidential argument you've got to at least say something about the other arguments. So I think for, for both sort of parties to the debate, things just get a lot more complicated. Absolutely. Um, another, another way, I guess, one could avoid uh, the, evidential, the, the evidential force of the argument would be to say that, well, uh, my God isn't like that, right? So you have people like open theists, for example, mm-hmm. who, who deny that God uh, would know uh, exhaustive future events, right? Um, and so that could be kind of a way out for God. Yeah, and I so f- I guess for myself that um, strikes me as not so much a a way of trying to answer the argument, um, but rather making the case that okay, the sort of God I believe in, this argument simply isn't relevant to that God. I mean, I think Rowe's argument is, is pretty clearly directed at a um, the, the more traditional perfect God who would have. Uh, the, you know, the various perfections. Um, and so it's not so, again, I, I see it not so much as a, as a way of responding. It doesn't really make the case that there's, there's any defect in Rowe's argument. Right. It's just saying, it's just, you know, saying well, I, be, I basically believe in a different sort of God, one to which this argument doesn't apply. Um, yeah, so, so I guess it, it's not exactly a response in my mind. Yeah, um, but I guess I, mean, what, I wanted to mention one other strategy, of course, which is... Uh, I mean, the traditional way of trying to, or at least one common way of trying to deal with these these arguments from evil, of course, is to try to identify some greater good that these evils are connected to. Right. So that's obviously another important um, strategy. Um, and there are, you know, on, on the theist side, of course, there are a host of, of theodicies on offer. I think one of the strengths of Rowe's fawn example was it's, it's sort of designed to sidestep a lot of the most popular greater good defenses. So, the, for example, the fawn, the fawn suffering is a result of a natural disaster, so you can't sort of pin it on human free will. And then I think when, when Roe describes his example, he stipulates that, you know, nobody ever knows about the fawn suffering, so they can't sort of learn from it and, and feel sympathy or experience character development or anything like that. Right, so I right. think he tried to set up an example where um, it would be very difficult to identify any greater good that would be connected with, uh, with, with the suffering in that case. Absolutely. Um, so I guess back to skeptical theism, uh, one, one of the ways I, I, I like to kind of articulate what this kind of means is, is to think of, a, of an expert chess player. I, I, I forget who uses this analogy, but I think it's a really fitting one where, um, you know, you have this expert chess player and he makes a move against you that you just can't possibly understand why he did that. Like, it just seems like it's a self-defeating move. Um, but recognizing your cognitive limits, the kind of epistemic chasm that exists between you and this expert chess player, you you aren't really in a position to say that he probably made a bad move. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that is a nice, uh, a nice analogy. Um, and so, of course, in the case of, of God... Um, the relationship between humans and God, we would be like the novice. God, of course, would be the, the master chess player. Instead of chess pieces, I guess we're talking about uh, goods and evils. Uh, and so it's the same kind of idea. Um, God, may, I guess, makes a move. It looks to us uh, to be a terrible move. It involves lots of evil or, or suffering. Um, but uh, we're supposed to recognize that, uh, well, for all we know, there might be some, some justification, some reason. Uh, that God has that's beyond our ken or beyond our understanding, and so we should uh, um, be sort of be very modest in our own assessment of how well we understand this move, and so we shouldn't really conclude that it's um, that it's probably a bad move. We're sort of in the uh, in the dark. Um, if I can, let me let me offer just another. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of analogies that get used here. Let me sure. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's another one that I that I like to use. Um, uh, I think one of the one of the nicer formulations has it that uh, sort of the core idea is that for all we know there are lots of goods, evils, and connections between good and evil mm-hmm. of which of which we human beings are unaware. 
so the analogy I like to use here is if you imagine um, you imagine a sort of an iceberg and think of the iceberg as representing uh, all the all the facts or truths there are about you know goods and evils and how they're related to each other. And so I think that skeptical what the skeptical theist is really saying is. Um, we, we have no idea how much of this iceberg is, is visible to human beings. So if the part above the, above the water is the part that we're familiar with and understand, we have no idea how much is, is below the surface. Maybe right. we see most of it, maybe we just see only, uh, only the tip. Yeah. Um, and so the way this sort of connects back to Rowe's argument, um, as the chess analogy suggests, is it's supposed to undermine or... Um, make uh, cast doubt on the reliability of the noceum inference. Um, so the skeptical theist says, okay, suppose there's an evil that appears to us to be gratuitous. Um, this is like the, the move in chess that looks bad. Mm-hmm. Well, so what? We have, we've got no idea how complete or incomplete our knowledge of good and evil is, so we've got no idea whether or even how likely it is that the evil in question is somehow connected to a significant good or evil. So for all we know, this apparently apparently gratuitous evil isn't really gratuitous at all, but instead it's actually justified by some some good or evil or reason that's beyond our ken, right. which of course is known to God. Right. So implicit in the noceum inference is the assumption that our understanding is actually at least roughly representative, and so that's what the skeptical theist is saying. No, you can't have that assumption. Right. Um, and again, I think it's, I guess they, they often emphasize, and I think this is important, it's not, they're not necessarily saying that our understanding isn't. It might turn out to be good, it's just that we, we sort of don't know. It's, uh, it's right. we're, we're unaware of um, how good our understanding is, and I think the thought is that's enough to, to cast doubt on the no-seum inference. So once this was originally uh, presented to Roe by Weikstra, uh, I, I kind of uh, like Roe's initial response. He says, quote, if human and animal life on Earth were nothing more than a series of agonizing moments from birth to death, my friend's position would still require them to say that we cannot reasonably infer that it is even likely that God does not exist. So it's a kind of like reductio, like this just seems absurd. Like no matter how horrible things were, we are still supposed to say that we're in no position to say that God probably doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that, is a, that is a nice point. Um, the way I sort of look at it is, um, so the skeptical theist initially says, you know, we, we can't be sure of the limits of our own understanding. Um, but one thought I have in this connection, which I think is, re- is related to the passage he quoted from Roe, is it seems like the more seemingly gratuitous evil we're faced with, um, the more that suggests that we don't really understand what God is up to and what's going on. So, I mean, you can imagine... I mean, Roe considers, in the, in the passage he quoted, he's sort of discussing one extreme where um, it's like life is nothing but, you know, seemingly gratuitous evil. Um, and that would suggest that we are pretty clueless. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, at the other extreme, you can imagine, and I think our world is probably in, in between, but the other extreme is, it's like everything makes perfect sense. You know, we can see the, the reason for everything, but there's just this one guy had a slight headache one time, and we couldn't quite figure out what that was about. <laughs> uh, and so there, it's like, okay, um, you know, skeptical theism sort of applies there, but at least our, our sense of what we don't, I mean, our sense is that well, we pretty much get most of it. Maybe there are just a few minor details about right, good right. that we don't quite get. But in, you know, in Rose Extreme, um, we would have to say we don't really understand what's going on at all. So I don't know whether, whether I mean, I think Rose's comment is an interesting one. I don't know whether it, it really is, you know, constitutes a sort of decisive reductio, but I think it right. points toward this interesting implication, which is that we can, we can sort of get a sense of how ignorant we, we must be um, the more we, you know, the, the, the more apparently gratuitous evils there are, um, the less of that ice, or the more of that iceberg must be below the surface, right? Right. There's been a number of, of responses to this, to the skeptical theist position, mainly arguing that there seems to be no principled way of limiting this skepticism. That right. This skepticism kind of bleeds over to parts of uh, theism that, that it would be unwelcome to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps unpack some of those. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the, the thought has been, 
and I'm certainly in this camp that, um, you know, skept, uh, skepticism is kind of a dangerous uh, tool. And, yeah, as you say, it can easily get out of hand uh, and, and lead to skepticism in areas that the, that the theist um, is going to be unhappy with. So the, the theist is, uh, they're aiming for a very, you know, limited and focused um, kind of skepticism. And so there are, there are various arguments making the case that, um, the skepticism they get stuck with is is much wider or broader than they would be happy with. So, uh, one of the more one of the strategies along these lines that's gotten I think the most attention uh, is a worry that says um, that it, the skeptical theism leads to wide-reaching moral skepticism. So the idea is that uh, if if for all we know there are all sorts of good evils and connections between them that are beyond our ken. Uh, then we're really in the dark when it comes to figuring out whether the consequences of our own actions will be good or bad. So just as, for example, in, it seems to us that Rose Fawn suffers for no good reason, but the skeptical theist says, well, there might well be a hidden justification for the Fawn's suffering. In the same way, it might seem to you that you should flip the switch to prevent the runaway trolley from hitting the helpless child. But if skeptical theism is true, there might be some hidden reason not to flip the switch after all. Right. Um, and so, according to these critics, skeptical theism really leads to a kind of moral paralysis, where if we don't, we don't know what God's up to because there might be hidden goods and evils, then we, we don't really know what we should do in, in, in moral situations because of the possibility of hidden goods and evils. So, yeah, we're stuck in, in sort of to- total moral uh, skepticism. Right. And, and I guess one of the responses to this kind of line of thought would be, well, that kind of assumes a consequentialist view of ethics, and that's fairly rare among um, among theists. Yeah, that's right. Um, so this, I mean, this is a case where there's a lot of replies and counter-replies on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think uh, one thought would be, right, um, this, this is only a worry if you're a consequentialist, um, one sort of counter-reply to that might be, well, you don't have to be a full-on consequentialist to recognize that consequences of actions are at least one relevant consideration. Absolutely. Um, and so if, if there might, you know, if, if for all we know there are these huge, <laughs> hugely significant goods and evils connected, even if you're not a consequentialist, there might still be a danger of um, a kind of, you know, uh, moral paralysis here. For all we know, there's, there's this tremendously important good that would be lost if you save the kid, or, or a great evil that would be prevented by sacrificing the kid. Even if you're not a consequentialist, that might be enough to, to make a moral difference. Mm-hmm. This uh, might be an ignorant question, but uh, wouldn't, wouldn't the skeptical theist be assuming a kind of consequentialism? I was just going to say that. Yeah. Because, uh, well, why is God allowing this suffering to take place? Well, there must be some sort of consequence uh, that will come from this suffering that's a good one. Yeah, they've got to be, again, just I think related to the um, what I was just saying, I'm not sure they need to assume, you know, straight out right. traditional consequentialism, but they, they clearly have to assume that um, consequences are, are an important, at least right. one important yeah. moral consideration, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, whatever, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. So whatever, um, well, one, one possible complication is you might think that, uh, um, I suppose you might think that the moral... Um, principles that apply to God would, might be different from those that apply to humans. Um, so maybe even if God is working in, in one kind of moral framework, maybe a different one should hold for humans. Um, but whether that could be, you know, defended is... Yeah, is, uh, probably has uh, consequences just as absurd as skeptical theism as far as making morality unintelligible yeah, at that, that point. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, carry on. <laughs> Um, so, so I'd like to explore um, your your work on uh, your criticism of, of skeptical theism uh, that you call that you refer to as divine deception or divine lies. Uh, could you walk us through the the kind of general thrust uh, to your argument? Yeah, sure. So it's um, it's in the same uh, sort of genre of of the res- of the response we were just discussing. That is to say. Um, it's trying to make the case that uh, the skeptical element of skeptical theism sort of gets out of hand and leads to results that the theist isn't going to be happy with. Right. Um, 
So I think the, the heart of my idea could be put this way. Uh, just as God might have reasons beyond our ken for permitting horrendous evils, similarly, he might have reasons beyond our ken for deceiving us in various ways. So the worry is that skeptical theism leads to the result that we can't trust divine revelation. Um, and I think that obviously doesn't sit very well with traditional theism. <laughs> no. uh, so but let, me, let me try to sort of, I mean, that, so the core of it, I think, is, can be put very simply. Let me try to maybe flesh it out um, a bit more. Uh, now, I have to say, my, my thinking is on, the, on this strategy has shifted a bit. So when I was first thinking about it, um, I was inclined to think that, that skeptical theism alone would undermine trust in divine revelation. But now I'm actually not so sure that that's right. Here's why. It seems like if, if we're trying to figure out to what extent we can trust divine revelation, there's, there are at least two questions to consider. The first is the question... Um, you know, might God have good reasons to deceive us? And that's where I think um, skeptical theism suggests that uh, the answer should be sure. If we all, for all we know, God has good reasons to deceive us. Right. Um, but I think there's another question that's relevant, which is what is God's track record like? So does he have a record of, of uh, deception uh, in the past or not? Um, so, I mean, even if we, if we think that, well, skeptical theism suggests that God might well have these reasons to deceive, if we suppose that God also, if we know that God has a track record of, of perfect honesty with no deception, um, then it's not so clear that the skeptical theism part uh, should be particularly troubling. It seems like we're in a position where we should say, sure, it's possible that God could deceive us, um, but maybe it's not a possibility that's worth um, worrying about too much. So I think the we have to really look at God's sort of track record um, when it comes to deception. Um, and I think if we find, if we sort of discover that God's track record includes some important cases of deception, now we can get this, this worry going, um, because we'd be in a situation where we know that God sometimes deceives uh, human beings, and skeptical theism tells us he might well have reasons to deceive that are completely beyond our ken. Mm-hmm. So then if we consider something like uh, the example I discussed when I write about this is God's well-known declaration that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Well, if we know that God sometimes deceives, and he might have reasons completely beyond our ken for deceiving us about this eternal life business, then, then it seems like we should take very seriously the possibility that he's deceiving us in that case as well. And, right. and again, I think that's something that, of course, the traditional Christians are, are not going to um, be too happy with. Um, so let me say a bit more about, uh, if I can, about the track record business. So I, sure. I've, got a, I've got a forthcoming paper where I try to develop that aspect of the, uh, of the argument a bit more. And in that paper I talk about four cases of uh, what look like divine deception found in Scripture. I'll just, if I can, just mention a couple. I won't sort of work through the whole, the whole thing here. But um, there are some sort of prominent cases in Scripture that seem to involve divine deception of human beings. Mm-hmm. So one example is just uh, in the Genesis account of Adam and Eve in the garden, God at one point says to Adam, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Uh, now there's a biblical scholar, James Barr, who comments on this, and he says that uh, all cases of the phrase, you shall surely die in the Old Testament, refer to an imminent death. And he says there are, there are at least 40 examples of this. Um, but, of course, after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they're punished, but they don't actually die. They certainly don't die imminently. And oh, so, Eric, they die spiritually. Don't you know that? <laughs> yeah, so they're... <laughs> right. Uh, there are various... Um, and I talk about some of this in the, in the paper. There are various ways of, of interpreting it. But the case I want to make is that... Um, I mean, the, the response you mentioned there, that they die spiritually, of course, involves a metaphorical reading mm-hmm. um, of the passage. But that's just, I- unless you are already sort of in advance putting divine deception off the table, um, there's no particular reason to, you know, to go to that sort of metaphorical interpretation. Right. Yeah, and of course, if you... ad hoc. Yeah, and if you imagine yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes, <laughs> <laughs> you would, as God would realize, you would be unlikely to take it in any sort of metaphorical way. Um, and so, so that, you know, at least I think a very natural reading of it is that this is a, a divine deception. Um, God deceives Adam about the consequences of, of eating the forbidden fruit. Uh, 
So, okay, that's one possible example. Another example is the uh, the famous um, Binding of Isaac case. Well, something, just, just a quick yeah, note, sure. something you do bring up in the paper that I thought was, was interesting is that you point out that the serpent was actually more truthful as to the consequences of their action than it seems that God would, yeah, at least on this plain reading. That's right. That's an interesting twist. Um, the serpent actually says, you know, God is just trying to keep you down and you won't actually die. Um, and and that actually, yeah, that turns out to be um, to be right uh, on this reading. The serpent is uh, is a more truthful one, which is a, which is an interesting twist on yeah. the whole story, right? Since, uh, the serpent is often portrayed as the deceiver in all of this. Um, but again, on the on the natural reading, um, it's uh, yeah, the, between God and the serpent, ser- the serpent actually is is the more the more truthful of the two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, then in the uh, the binding of Isaac, um, of course, this is the famous case where God commands Abraham to offer Isaac, his only son, as a sacrifice. Um, and now, as of course, as the story goes, Abraham um, takes Isaac to the place God commanded, and he's about to. He's got the knife raised. He's about to kill Isaac, but uh, sort of at the last second, God stops the proceedings. Um, and and the t- the story is typically understood as a as a demonstration of the depth of Abraham's faith or devotion to God. Right. Uh, he's willing to um, kill his only son um, because God commanded him to. But if you think about the the story in that way, then it, the story is is at least most effective as that sort of demonstration. Only if Abraham really believes that he's going to have to kill Isaac, which of course is not the case, as God would have known all along. And so again, if you read this. You know, and I think the most natural way, it looks like God intentionally deceives Abraham. He leads Abraham to believe falsely that he's going to have to kill uh, his son. Right. Um, I, in the paper, there's a couple other cases, but I think this is enough to kind of give people a sense of, of the argument. So the one other thing I want to point out about these cases is they both, and this is actually true of all four cases I discussed in the paper, they're all cases where God deceives humans about what what the future has in store for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because, the, um, of course, God's declaration that all who believe in him will have eternal life is obviously about the future. Right. And so now, we, when we look at God's track record and we notice that it includes cases of deception about the future, and then we add in um, skeptical, theism in, in, skeptical theism's implication that God might have hidden reasons to deceive us, this is where I think we can really make the case that... Um, we can't really rely on God's declaration about eternal life. Can I uh, pause and, and um, suggest another example, or rather, I, I would like to hear what your feedback on would be on using this as an example sure. of divine deception. But um, um, in the Pauline and pseudo-Pauline epistles, you get little bits of um, of text talking about. God sending a great spirit of deception uh, right. upon upon people so that they could not believe, they could not repent and receive salvation, and that would seem to me like a a pretty direct verse where God is actually manipulating people's understanding of the salvation process uh, in order to condemn them. I don't know. Do you think that would be a worthwhile text to bring up in yeah. this argument? I, I mean, I think uh, yes, I do. I think. Um and, and there are some others, um, you know, I focus on the, on the four in my paper, but I think there are others um, that are suggestive along those lines as well. Um, in that, that case, is striking that I think, uh, tell me if this is right, I, I mean, I've looked at that verse before, but God is actually sending a, dis, a, like a deceitful spirit yeah. um, or something like that. And it gives his reason so that they right. cannot repent and, and turn back. And I imagine a theist responding to some of the texts you brought up as, okay, well, God might lie about Jesus going to a party or uh, mm-hmm. or tying up tying up Isaac, but none of these things are as crucial as that salvation doctrine, mm-hmm. knowledge of salvation. God right, wouldn't right. possibly lie to some to us about something that that momentous. Yeah. But if you can actually show he's already doing that. We have passages where he is directly manipulating people's understanding of the gospel to make sure that they aren't saved. <laughs> That's, That's a, a nice point. It's directly connected to the uh, to the um, there's a connection with salvation there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, I think that's a, that's a that's a point that's worth making. Um, I do think um, 
there's this thought that, well, maybe God deceives about, about these other things, but he wouldn't deceive us about salvation. Um, what I think, yeah, that passage you, you um, just mentioned is, offers a nice rejoinder there. Of course, I also think um, in some of the, pas- the other passages, like the Adam and Eve one in the garden, he's certainly deceiving them about something very important. That's true. Right. right. So um, I think it's, what you're looking for is a kind of um, precedent. Yeah. Um, right, and so I think some of those examples will uh, will offer that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's another, you know, general worry as well. God might to the to this response. It says, "Well, God might deceive us about one thing, but I He wouldn't deceive us about this other thing." I mean, I do think that's where skeptical theism can make make some trouble, right? That's true. Um, yeah. At least, certainly, if you're thinking, "Well, I, I just can't think of any, you know, what what possible reason could He have for deceiving us about something like this?" But, of course, that's precisely where skeptical theism says, well, um, you know, the fact that we can't think of any reason doesn't, doesn't tell us much. Yeah, yeah, good point. I, I think maybe the, the passages are, might add a little extra emotional or yeah. rhetorical weight, but, yeah, probably doesn't, doesn't really make or break the case. Um, I was interested to, to see um, this uh, quote by Origen, uh, an early church father, that seems to suggest that this wasn't – necessarily a, a terribly foreign idea to the early church fathers. Uh, right. You quote Origen in saying, quote, We are all children of God, and we need the discipline of children. Because of this, God, since he cares about us, deceives us. Yeah, I uh, I was pretty, I have to say, I was pretty excited when I found Origen, <laughs> Origen's writings on this topic. Um, and so, right, when I was, you know, as I got more into thinking about this issue and trying to develop this argument further, I started looking in, you know, more into the, what, the, what the tradition had to say about this. And, of course, I think, um, you know, these days uh, the dominant view seems to be that it would just be impossible, really incompatible with God's moral perfection um, for him to deceive in mm-hmm. any way. I think this is uh, perhaps because of the influence of, of Descartes. Descartes, you know, this was a, a, a cornerstone of his attempt to uh, save us from from uh, total skepticism that um, that God would it would be impossible for God to deceive and and then when you look at um, I think this is what drives many interpretations of some of these passages that, that I've been talking about um, that is to say it drives people to favor uh, metaphorical interpretations of some of God's declarations in these passages if you look at um, you know commentaries on these passages sort of the it's very common for the first point to be made is, well, of course, God can't be deceiving in this passage, so we've got to find another way of interpreting it. Um, but I think, uh, I, th- I mean, one, I think that view is, is uh, not particularly plausible. Mm-hmm. But as you say, it's quite striking to see um, within the Christian tradition itself, there's definitely this, I guess, it, I guess it's a minority tradition, but still an important one, um, that actually endorses divine deception. So, And you have references, references from... Um C.S. Lewis, not like he's a very important philosopher, but but uh, you know noted apologist and and uh, um, Platinga even. I was really impressed with the amount of quotes you were able to amass, demonstrating that this is a tradition. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely and and Origen is one of the the great figures. I mean, he he sort of develops it the most. So, and I think what's nice about about Origen's position is it draws on a very you know, familiar idea within Christianity um, that that the relationship between God and humans is is something like the relationship between parents and children, right? Right, right. Um, and so uh, it's you know I think when we think of the, the relationship between um, parents and children, that's a case where we can start to see that certain kinds of deception will be um, permissible uh, and perhaps even admirable. So one of the one of the examples that I like the most that sort of makes that point is um, from this this uh, this film Life is Beautiful, where um, the film uh, part of it depicts a father and son who are thrown into a Nazi concentration camp, and in the film, in order to shield his son from the horrors of the camp and to help him survive, the father convinces his son he makes up this sort of elaborate lie that that really what's happening is they're they're in a game. Where there are different teams, and the first team to win a thousand to earn a thousand points will win a tank, and then he assigns uh, point you know rewards to behaviors that will be helpful in the concentration camp, and then penalties or point decreases to dangerous behaviors. 
and he keeps up this deception um, throughout the whole time there there in the camp, and he, he enables the son to survive and even um, you know keep him relatively happy throughout this ordeal. And so I think in the film, the father is portrayed as a, as a kind of a hero, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, and so I think there, are, when we think about you know parents and children, there's a strong case to be made that there are, there are going to be certain kinds of situations where it's it's quite permissible for the parents to deceive the children, maybe even admirable. And Origen really picks up on that idea, uh, and he says, um, I mean, the passage you read um, uh, makes that point, so that just as we're children of, of uh, God, and parents uh, are often justified in deceiving their children, and the children often don't know why, um, can't see the reason for the deception, in the same way, um, God can be justified in, in deceiving us. Right. So this, this tradition, uh, it, yeah, it definitely exists within uh, the Christian tradition. And so it's sort of interesting. Um, yeah, in a way, I was gratified to discover <laughs> that uh, there was there were thinkers within Christianity itself that that um, advanced this sort of view. Yeah, <clears throat> um, you you note in, in in your paper that uh, it's uh, that Descartes kind of dismisses even the possibility of divine lying mm-hmm. uh, because he thinks that lying must always uh, entail a kind of deficiency in the. In the liar, right? right? But but you know cases like this, like this life is beautiful movie, and and you know it's it's fairly easy to come up with different scenarios. Uh, seem to suggest that 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 that's just wholly implausible. That there are clearly some cases that that are justified in, in lying. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think um, it's a case where I mean I think the, the sort of just to add a bit to to why that's the case. I think um, you know it, the. The way to put it, I think, is that the, the fact that a given action would be a, a case of deception or lying, that might be a factor that tends to make that action wrong. It's a, um, a wrong maker, you might say, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a defeasible wrong maker. It's not um, decisive, and it can be outweighed or overridden by other considerations. Um, and I think a lot of the examples, the life is beautiful, what makes that example, so even if it's, you know, prima facie or uh, on the surface, uh, you know, wrong to deceive, we can see in that case that there are these much more compelling reasons that, that favor the deception, um, which makes it justified, uh, all things considered. And so, again, I think Origen picked up on this, um, and his position is the more plausible one. Yeah. Uh, deception doesn't always, you know, arise from or, or uh, flow from some, corner, some sort of imperfection. In fact, I mean, Origen, his idea is that it's precisely because God loves us that he sometimes deceives us. Right. It's not... An, it's not it's uh, it's not in spite of his loving it's because of his loving exactly which which parallels in in you mentioned the uh the cs lewis uh passage i quote in the paper um it's striking i mean lewis i don't think talks about divine deception in this way but he his view implies that it's um precisely because god loves us that he allows us to suffer in certain cases yeah and so you see a, a nice parallel between um, again, the, the permitting of evil and suffering um, and um, divine deception, where both things, there are, there are factors that tend to make them wrong, but of course the theistic view is, um, in the case of permitting evil, there can be other factors that make it justified, all things considered, which is exactly the, the case that the position that origin holds when it comes to divine deception, and that, to me, seems to be the, the correct position. Right. Um, so, so this argument um, that kind of ends in, in, in saying that, look, we're just really not in a position to place probabilities on the truth value of claims that have biblical justification only. Um, a theist might uh, accept that argument uh, and say that it's not really a problem because, um, you know, the fact that God wants us to believe something is reason enough to believe it. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Right. So... An interesting and perhaps problematic implication of that move is it it suggests that uh, you know when God um, sort of tells us something, um, it's not really it doesn't seem to even really be divine revelation anymore. It's more like a command to us just to believe this thing. Right. So I think one sort of weird um, result that we would get from this view is um, it's uh, you know it, it's definitely we seem to be abandoning the traditional view of, of divine revelation, that God is sort of letting us in on some important, you know, truth um, about the universe that only he can tell to us. 
and now it's just we're sort of like, well, I guess you know, here's another thing he wants us to believe, so we should try to get ourselves um, to believe it. Uh, and so this, you know, as you think about this, I think you'll see it's, a, it's just a radical departure from the way I think traditional Christianity wants to look at things, where um, in the traditional view, God is sort of this father figure, but also kind of a partner, and it's like he's giving us, you know, this, this um, important and, and, and uh, hard-to-grasp or hard-to-get knowledge. Um, we move away from that view toward, well, I'm not really sure what he's up to, but he wants us to believe this thing, so I guess we should try to um, try right. to get ourselves to believe it. Um, so whether, you know, whether whether theists can accept that sort of view is for them to decide, but I would simply point out that it's it's a big, um, seems like a radical departure from the more traditional way of looking at things. Absolutely. Um, another re- response that uh, you anticipate in, in uh, one of your earlier versions of this paper uh, is that the theist accepts the argument, but says that it doesn't really matter because, you know, at least in the end, they are reassured that, uh, you know, at least in the end, um, everything will turn out for the best. Perhaps that provides um, some reassurance, but that really the way to put it would be, well, everything will turn out for the best in the end, wh- whatever that means. Um, <laughs> right. So what what exactly. lost is any determinant conception of what the end will really be like especially if we are we have very good reasons to be skeptical about what god would promise for the future yeah exactly so um and again it's it's a lot of these um responses i think are interesting but they the the thing i want to point out about them is how how far they sort of leave us from the traditional christian view Mm -hmm. where again god is um not just sort of telling us everything will be okay but he's telling us look here's here's what it's going to be like and we think that we've got an understanding of what's in store for us, whereas in this other view of things, we start to realize, well, gee, maybe we have no idea what's happening. All we know is that things will turn out for the best. Who knows what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what, what really is, is sort of going on here? <laughs> and, and so, um, it, uh, yeah, whether, whether that's going to be enough um, for traditional Christianity, or for, traditional, for Christians, I think, is, is sort of for them to decide. My, my, uh, what I'm trying to do is simply point out that this is, seems to be a pretty, pretty radical change um, from the more familiar view. Yeah, I think most people want more than reassurances. They want to know that their moral worldview is, is intelligible. They, they want to know, have guidance for their life and a sense of purpose. And as we previously discussed, that's, that's what's really being challenged here. Yeah. They can have uh, some sense that it'll all work out in the end, but, uh, but they, it doesn't seem like they could claim much else. Yeah, and so you're left with, you'd be in a weird position where, at a deep level, you really don't know what's going on. Yeah, it could be that what it means for everything to work out best at the end is that everyone, that is that annihilationism is true, where just everyone just ceases to exist, and and for some unknown reason to us, that's really what the best is. Yeah, so so it might be all, better yeah. for us to think that we'll go on living an eternal life in harmony right. with uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, much like uh, much like Isaac going to the slaughter with Abraham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Or Adam and Eve in, in the garden. So God um, says these things, or makes us believe certain things about the future. Future ter- turns out to be quite different. It's all for the best. We don't really understand, you know, why or, or what that what that means. This is just a very far cry from um, how how the Christian, I think, really traditionally views, you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last uh, objection I want to raise uh, is, is at least to me, it seems like the most formidable challenge to the argument. Um, so the theist might say something like this, right? While, while it is true that skeptical theism prevents us from making probabilistic all things considered judgments about whether God or about whether God is lying in a particular biblical passage, we can still make all else being equal judgments. Given that the theist believes all else being equal, God would tell the truth. Uh, it seems that they could still remain rationally confident that the biblical claim is still probably true. Well, the track record, though. Yeah, so this right. is the, uh, I think this is um, the uh, McBrayer and, and Swenson response. Mm. Is, that, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, I think that uh, some, of the, some of the critics um, of, the, of my initial paper on this, um, I, I think that there's a good point that's being made um, there, which is 
the track record, I take it that really the lesson is that the track record is important. Okay. Um, and so I do think that that part of the argument is, is pretty important. Um, if, if we had a case where we look at God's track record and there's just, you know, it's, it's perfect honesty, especially about the future, it does seem to me that the, the worry about divine deception would remain pretty theoretical. I mean, we would be in a position where um, we would ha- I think we would have to concede, you know, God might deceive us, and in any particular case, we, the fact that we can't think of any reason he would deceive us doesn't really tell us much. But you might look at the track record and say, okay, nevertheless, you know, in fact, we probably shouldn't worry about that too much because God has always been honest in the past. Right, right. And so I think that um, the, when you bring the track record in, I think that really sort of strengthens the worry, and, and that's what moves it from being a sort of more theoretical worry to, to a worry that's, you know, should be taken more seriously. Yeah, um, my, I guess my thinking to this would be that it kind of assumes that we are in a position to talk about, um, uh, about the kind of all else being equal. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to follow that if it's the case that for all we know, that these things are the case. It doesn't seem, it, there seems to be an assumption there, I guess, that there are more reasons available to God that are uh, truth conducive than are, than would motivate him to lie. Like that, that, that seems to be an assumption within this kind of response. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be wrong about that, but that just, that seems to be a worry, worry to me. And of course, the, that's exactly what, what skeptical theism should uh, right exactly yeah, and I don't I wouldn't make that available to them yeah yeah I mean I, I guess the way to put it is you know we've got no idea whether whether all things are equal right so if there's this, absolutely um, yeah I think it, I think that connects back to you know before I was saying the fact that an act is a case of deceiving it might be a wrong maker but it's a it's a defeasible one mm-hmm. um, and so even if there's a kind of you know prima facie case well God you know deceit tends to make things wrong. And so um, that gives us a reason to think that God wouldn't deceive. Uh, right, the problem, of course, is that skeptical theis- theism tells us that, um, well, for all we know, there might be even stronger reasons for deception in any particular case. Uh, so I think, um, you know, to the extent that that response is simply, perhaps it, one way to understand it is simply pointing out that um, deception is a wrong maker. Um, I think it's right that that doesn't, you know, go very far. Right, right, um, right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that by itself might not take us very far. On the other hand, I, I have become convinced that the, the track record business is going to be an important part of this, of this argument. Absolutely. Um, and so that, uh, I've, this, this, other, this forthcoming paper I, is where I try to develop that side of things a lot more. And, of course, I bring my, my buddy Origin into the, into the mix to help me out. <laughs> well, this I'm is an ally kick. in that side of things. Absolutely. This, well, this is definitely a, a very interesting argument, and I've found it very helpful in uh, some of the debates, debates I've uh, been doing. Um, and I, so I guess I, I want to – I'm wondering if you have any other uh, work in the works. Do you have any other books that you're working on or any other papers that our listeners should be looking out for? Uh, well, I do have a book. Uh, I'm not sure when it will come out. It's, um, it's, in the, uh, it's in the final stages. Um, and it's sort of, uh, it's kind of doing two things. Part of it is the continuation of some of the ideas from one of the books you mentioned before, um, the Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe book. Okay. Um, so part of what I do is try to, and one of the things I was trying to do in that book was um, offer um, criticisms of, of various, uh, you know, theism, theistic approaches to ethics. Um, and so I developed some of that work further in this, this book. But I'm also in this book interested in in moral epistemology, uh, how it is that we could come to acquire knowledge of what's right and wrong. Okay. And so the book kind of has two main parts to it. The first part is uh, more of the godless ethics stuff, I guess I would say. And then the other part is actually, it gets a lot into in uh, some contemporary work in, in empirical psychology, where there's been a lot of research into the, the cognitive processes that produce our moral judgment. People are doing things like um, taking functional FRI, F- fMRI helmets, putting them on people, and then asking them, giving them moral dilemmas, and seeing where the blood flows in the brain. Mm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. So the other part of the book is basically trying to take some of those findings and then combine it with 
um, some stuff in philosophy to try to develop a, a plausible account of moral knowledge. Hmm. Um, so I think, um, you know, certainly if, if people are interested in the, um, you know, God and ethics um, and the godless approach to ethics, there's a, there's a, there'll be a hefty helping of that in the book. Uh, so that book's going to, I don't know when it'll come out, it's going to be published by Oxford University Press. The tentative title is um, Robust Ethics Without God or Weird Cognitive Faculties. I don't know if that title will last. <laughs> I like that title. I don't, I don't know if it'll be the final one, but that's the title uh, right now. So that's kind of the main thing. Very um, cool. I've, I've got in the works right now, yeah. All right. Well, well Eric, uh, we want to thank you uh, very much for coming on the show uh, to discuss the evidential problem of evil, skeptical theism, and your fascinating argument uh, about divine deception. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.